Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Keisha Kijano of Label Sessions talks to Rachel Nelkin. Rachel is a creative leader with over 20 years of experience, previously developing the Arts Train program to empower young musicians to develop their careers. Today, she's continuing that mission as the CEO of production house Raw Material in London. Rachel is a true champion of the arts and making a creative life a tangible reality. Wonderful. Well, welcome to the Label Sessions podcast, Rachel. We are thrilled you can join us. You've had an, a very interesting career journey and now you're the CEO of a, a nonprofit that focuses on breaking down barriers to creative skills development. And maybe if you could give us a, a sense of your career journey and a little bit about your role today. Absolutely. Um, so I started life as a musician. That was my passion growing up. And I trained <clears throat> as a musician and quickly realized that uh, the single-minded dedication that one needs to be an artist um, then and especially now uh, was not the right thing for me and that I would want to combine my love of art with, um, you know, much many other areas of interest that I had, particularly around supporting development of individuals, of organisations, making amazing things happen. And so my role in the kind of creative sector since then has covered all sorts of different areas, including funding. Um, so I started work as a fundraiser very early on, uh, and those skills have been absolutely crucial. Actually, uh, fundraising is uh, it's almost an art form in itself, and I think gives you some really extensive uh, range of skills that you can use in, in lots of contexts. Um, and then I was lucky enough to work with a number of key funders. One of those, the most notable one, was the PRS Foundation, so the Performing Rights Society, which is the kind of royalty collection society for musicians and songwriters in this country, um, decided in 1998 that they were going to set up a charitable foundation to support new music. And um, I was lucky enough to be part of a very small team, it was just two of us initially, um, who were given a million pounds to support the new music sector. Um, and we were really given, uh, you know, an open book, as it were, to kind of develop um, schemes and programs that supported composers and songwriters of all genres. And it was just an incredible opportunity to really think about what musicians at that point needed and, uh, you know, how we could really allow them time and space and creative opportunities to develop their work. Um, and of course, I met, you know, hundreds of you know, incredible people and read thousands of brilliant project applications. And, you know, some of those people I'm still in touch with now, which is, you know, over 20 years later, which is fantastic. Um, since then, I've worked with the Arts Council of England, uh, the Youth Music, who are one of the biggest funders of youth music making in the country. Um, and around uh, sort of 10 to 12 years ago, I really decided that um, as well as the joy of helping people with finding the funding and supporting their kind of vision. I actually wanted to make work myself. So I developed my own work as a producer in the creative sector. And I was uh, lucky enough to get 
roles at the iconic Roundhouse in Camden in London as their senior producer for a few years. So I put on some huge events there in their kind of main space that were kind of cross art form and some really amazing gigs with kind of um, visual installations and, um, you know, worked with some amazing artists like Imogen Heap and Eska Tungwazi and Gaika, you know, people who are still around making fantastic work today. Um, developed a lot of programs around emerging artists as well. And increasingly, I became aware of a, a drive to really build communities. Um, so much as I really loved, you know, some of the high profile shows that we did um, at the Roundhouse, the work that really excited me was when I knew that we were making a long term impact to people's lives, particularly those who were facing challenges or were underrepresented. Um, and I became increasingly interested in um, kind of inclusion, access, diversity, and the experience that many of the artists from kind of underrepresented groups, particularly those affected by systemic racism, were experiencing. I took all of that knowledge and experience to a role at the Albany Theatre in Deptford, which is one of the most diverse boroughs of London, Lewisham. And I was there ahead of pre creative programs for two years. And then, um, Right in the middle of the pandemic, um, a role came up at my charity that I'm at now as, as CEO, um, Raw Material Music and Media, which is a, a charity based in Brixton, um, one of the most exciting parts of London, I would say that. Uh, also the cultural heartland of the Black British community and, you know, an incredibly vibrant, you know, exciting place to work. And yes, the work that we do at Raw Material Music and Media is all about kind of supporting creative development, increasingly um, supporting people who are experiencing mental ill health is a huge part of our work. And we support around 300 to 400 uh, young people and adults every year who, you know, many of whom are facing challenges around their mental health and have been referred to us through, you know, the local NHS trust and for whom music and media and creativity is absolutely a tool that that helps them and supports them to feel better um, and to, you know, collaborate with each other, to make new networks, to, you know, feel a, a level of self-esteem and confidence. Um, and actually, we just had our uh, end of year gig last night where around 50 people, of you know, aged between about 14 and 70 performed, um, some of them for the first time on a stage. And yeah, to around 100 people, it's just, it's the most kind of uplifting thing that you could do, especially in the current climate when there's so much, uh, you know, sadness and conflict around seeing people explore, you know, how they can be the best version of themselves. It's a really exciting place to be. Turning to something that we understand is really important to you, um, collective and community leadership. What does what does this mean for you? And what does this mean in practice for you? Through my work in the arts and with many organisations, um, and especially once I got to senior level, I became very interested and sometimes a little frustrated by the kind of old-fashioned models that one would find in a number of the organizations I worked in, very hierarchical, very top down, often led by one person's vision at the top. 
and you know huge amounts of people scurrying around under <laughs> at the lower levels trying to kind of deliver this vision but not always feeling part of it more receiving rather than contributing and whilst a lot of lip service in the creative sector is is paid towards diversity and inclusion and you know many good developments have been made in terms of recruitment practices and in terms of representation there's still tend to be at the lower levels leadership looks not that different as it is as it did 20 years ago and what i really wanted to explore was how you how you really give people the knowledge the the tools and the understanding to genuinely contribute to the strategic direction of an organization um unless unless you have that opportunity it seems to me that you'll never really get a chance to move up and move beyond or feel genuinely like your contribution counts. So I was really inspired by kind of software development. Uh, my partner's a, a techie and uh, he works, you know, in agile software development. And I really wanted to see if we could take some of those principles around agile working into the way that we worked as a small nonprofit. So, you know, kind of working in project teams, uh, kind of collective leadership style of approach. Um, you know, the, of course, there are times where I have to be the boss and make the decision. But actually, um, one of the most practical things that we put in place was from an early stage, making sure that everyone in our team, including those junior members who'd never um, had any experience of this, really understanding the finances of the organization so we have an operational budget, which everybody uh, goes through, contributes. And I feel proud that everyone in my team could tell you, you know, where our money comes from um, and where where our money goes. They understand this. because so I think that financial expertise is something that, you know, often organizations don't give you unless you're the one actually dealing with it. And it's a barrier, actually, to progress. It's a barrier to being able to fully understand how organizations work. And unless you have that, you know, you, it's going to be very difficult for you to move on to a kind of management or direct position. So those are some kind of practical applications of kind of collective leadership. Um, the other thing that I, I tend to do is uh, I don't make any big decisions about the organization's future without kind of checking in with the team. I'm very lucky because it's a re relatively small team. There's eight people, so we can do this. And I appreciate that once you get to a much bigger organization, you know, it, it, how would you scale that up? But I'm sure there are ways of doing it. Um, I hope I'll try sometime. Um, and yeah, so at the moment, you know, I'm able to very quickly get uh, a sense of, you know, whether, how my team feel about new opportunities, about developments, um, if they're very resistant, uh, you know, we'll absolutely discuss that together. And, you know, I'm I'm unlikely to push something through unless there's a really good strategic reason for it. And uh, they, you know, they'll they'll understand if I do why why I've done it. So everything gets discussed, everything is consulted, um, without it being cumbersome. So there's also time when when there when we need to make quick decisions, we're able to do that in a fairly agile way as well. I'm interested in agency, both for people using your services and also those that deliver them. 
a kind of like a two-part question how do you create and maybe like protect agency in your role as a leader but then also what advice would you give to other leaders in creating and shaping that agency for others so one of the things that we've developed over the last two years um as well as making our board much more representative of the community that we serve and i know we're going to come on to that question or that just that area of the discussion and our staff team really reflects south london the community as well so the there's a there's a sort of you know the the line between our team and our trustees and our community is not that you know is is fairly blurry actually um and i think that really helps in terms of authenticity and understanding of what people need um in terms of offering agency or making sure that there is agency um everyone in our team knows that they can bring their own ideas of you know how they can better shape their own roles or what opportunities there might be you know that we haven't thought of um so there's obviously something about regular communication and having an open door policy and i you know again because it's a relatively small team it's it's fairly easy for me to do that um i guess there's a challenge around that when you're a busy ceo about um you know how much time can you really give to talk to people and you know when you've got your own kind of list of jobs that you need to do um i find it's really helpful to remind myself that that is the job <laughs> the job is the people our people are our best asset um and i think keeping that in mind ensures that they feel they're able to um push forward with any ideas that they have to bring those to the team to bring those to me and that hopefully ensures that they feel a sense of agency so that's the team in terms of the wider community we uh talked as a team you know a couple of years ago about how we started to uh work with the community in terms of ensuring that we're programming what they want rather than a few of us sitting in an office deciding what they need and we set up something which isn't, uh, you know, it, it's not a complete groundbreaking idea, but it works so well, which is it's called our programming committee. And um, I suppose the 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 areas that are perhaps unusual about it is that we pay our members for their time. So we don't expect people to turn up uh, and give their time for free because it's as we see it, it's, it's a piece of work. So we have around 20 of our community members. It's intergenerational, so they can be teenagers or they can be some of our older adults. Um, they're paid a small amount, kind of 20, 20 pounds for a one and a half hour session. We, When we recruit for the programming committee, which we do anew every time, so it's all a different group, although some of the same people do come, um, we also concurrently run an open call out for new artists and practitioners to deliver work with us so this in turn helps us keep our pool of practitioners and our program fresh and allows people access to working with us as well so we make the process as you know we do our best to make the process not onerous and so artists simply have to upload a kind of two minute video of the type of course or project they'd like to work with us we then use Mentimeter in a public forum setting. Um, and so people can use their phones or tablets um, to vote on the pitches 
Um, I facilitate it and our, all of our team is there and our trustees, some of our trustees come as well. It's just a really good night. It's really good fun. Um, and what I find actually quite moving about it is how seriously our community take this. They take their role very seriously. They really push us to ensure that we're we are getting the artists to give the right information. So they'll often, you know, say, we don't have enough information here, you know, so we can't vote on this. You need to go back to the artist. Um, or they'll they'll think of, you know, areas of around access or um, guidance that we haven't considered. So it's, it's such a great learning journey as well. Um, we've run, I think, six programming committees since we started. We did them once a term. And each time we are able to go back and refine um, and hopefully do it better um, the next time. So, yeah, so that I, it's a very simple, it's a very simple process. And I feel like some version of that is something that anyone who works with a customer base of any kind could do. Um, in our case, it's our community, but I think it could be transferred to a commercial company as well. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible to know all the work that you do. Um, with that, I w could you give some some practical advice on how organizations can embrace community-led programming? It's kind of obvious stuff, like talk to people. And when I say it, it is obvious, I think it's obvious if you're in one of the public-facing roles. But for me as CEO, the temptation and default position for many people in my position is to be you know, hidden in the back. And actually I gained so much from go from being at these events, facilitating them myself. Um, at first we, we were thinking of getting an external facilitator, but because someone, it, at the last minute, someone fell out and I had to step in and do it. And actually I was so glad that I did um, because that ability to speak directly to people and also for our members to see me and to get to chat to me like they really enjoy that too. Well, I think they tell me I do. <laughs> they do, um, and they're pleased that someone from you know in a kind of director position is is coming and being part of the proceedings, and you know not hiding in the back office. So I think there's something about um, face to face time and uh, you know being with people, being in the setting, and hearing directly from them what their needs are. Uh, and it means that when I am going and writing the copious funding applications that I do, I have those people in my head, which really helps to make, I hope, our approaches and our storytelling uh, more authentic. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think, although you say kind of talking to someone, maybe it's an obvious bit of information, I'm sure a lot of people do need that reminder every so often because you can just get wrapped up in your own world. It's like, no, That's you're exactly right. Wrapped up in spreadsheets. That's what I always think. Yes, yeah, wrapped up in spreadsheets. Come out of the office. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. To pivot the conversation just a little bit, um, can we talk about a board for a bit? So the role of them, their makeup, and how CEOs in nonprofits and kind of and any other organisation can get the best of their board. Um, I know that at Raw Music, 
there was you kind of you, you started a shift to make the board more reflective of the communities that you serve. What was that journey like, and and where are you where are you now? It was a difficult journey initially. There were some board members, uh, one in particular that who was pretty resistant to the idea of representation diversification. They felt it was tokenistic. Um, so some difficult conversations had to be had. Um, I think my learning from that process was you can't make assumptions. Even in my world of nonprofits, <laughs> where you would assume that people are who are in it have a certain viewpoint and understanding of the world, especially in my case for a community charity based in Brixton, uh, in London. And I think that it was a really good reminder that actually um, boards can include anybody for any reason, and uh, it may not they may not share your views. Yeah, there was a, a a big piece of work to do, and I was really grateful that the majority of the remaining board members, many of whom had been who were quite new and had been through, there had been a lot of changes at my charity, as is not unusual, um, kind of internally. And then, of course, COVID threw everything out. Um, yeah, they'd been through a lot already, but they really understood what I was trying to do in terms of increasing, both increasing the, the size of the board and increasing its rep representation and kind of making sure that it reflected the community that we were working with and they really supported me and um, so therefore I was able to to move forward with this and we were able to recruit four more people who were you know absolutely brilliant and you know were brought a really different set of skills and knowledge and experience lived experience um, of London of the creative sector um, you know and were people who were quite aspirational, you know, three of them are artists. So for our community to see those people on a board, you know, again, being able to see yourself is so important. Um, and they, you know, they, we already had a really great range of kind of business and industry skills on the board. So that it was a great compliment. Um, so yeah, they're, they're an exciting board to work with. Um, and they're, I think they really, you know, are, they buck the trend for governance in this country. Um, Boards are still, you know, majority um, of a certain age and of a certain demographic, uh, who doesn't need explained. Uh, mine is, my board is now 80% kind of global majority, um, you know, kind of age range between 30 and 60. Um, uh, there's eight women and two men. So it's also a majority female led. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it, it feels really good. What advice would you give to other organizations on how and also why to diversify their board? So the why is very simple for me um, in that uh, you, if you don't have a board which truly understands the experience of your community, then they won't be able to guide and support you and advocate for your work in the same way that my board is able to because they really understand you know the the demographic of the people that we're working with their their needs their interests what works so i think that, yeah there's definitely something about authenticity then 
for our community itself, being able to see people who reflect their own experience and journey, I think is uh, reassuring at the least um, and, you know, aspirational at best. And the fact that those people will come and spend time, you know, at our pro programming committee, they'll join us at our events. I think that's really, the members really appreciate that. I know that because they've said so. Um, so that's, again, really important. And I think that comes with the kind of um, lived experience and kind of, uh, you know, having real interests and uh, passions in the same area. Um, in terms of how to do it, how you recruit through a more diverse board there there are a lot of resources online and also there are a couple of really good organizations um which you can check out uh, so there's a, a great organization called getting on board who do a huge amount of work supporting organizations uh particularly charities to diversify their boards but they're not the only one but they're 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 a brilliant one um and for me, what really worked was a personal approach. So we, of course, ran an open recruitment campaign. Um, in my case, I had my eye on a couple of people, two people that I knew already, and so was able to approach them as, you know, a previous connection, and two that I didn't. Um, and so, you know, the the opportunity was there really to make an approach and be really clear about why I was approaching. Um, when the approach was made, it was not long after, um, you know, 2020, after George Floyd's murder. Um, one of the people that I approached had been, you know, she's a very high profile uh, person um, in the creative sector. And she quite rightly was, you know, one, wanted to understand why she'd been approached and, you know, wanted to make sure that it wasn't some kind of tokenistic effort. Um, luckily I knew exactly why I'd approached her and it was, it was, it was not. And, uh, you know, luckily I was able to make that case. So she really understood it, um, and was reassured by that. And, you know, she's absolutely brilliant. Um, but making those personal approaches and making them, making sure that you really understand why you're approaching the people that you're approaching, um, you've really looked them up, you've researched them, you've done your homework, you understand their background and what they can bring to the board and equally what you hope that working with you and your charity will bring to them. Um, I think that's really important because it's a two-way thing. You're asking people to give up their time, at least in the charity sector. It might be different in the commercial world. Um, so I think that's, I think, you know, know your, know your worth, know their worth and kind of understand, you know, what the synergy is. I think that's, that's a brilliant piece of advice. And also that bit about when you're approaching people, it's not just as an act of kind of tokenism and you really understand why and kind of can explain that as well I think that's so important so something that is honestly quite overlooked which is quite surprising in this it is and I you know I don't want to be cynical but I think you know I certainly hear this from my friends you know of global majority heritage that you know there 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 have been some almost laughable uh, proposals that they've received, you know, where it, it's clear that there's been no real insight into into them as people, and it's you know it's about the looks of it. 
Um, so yeah, don't be that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And I think it's important to have these kind of conversations to make people aware of that that is a thing, what they should be doing, what kind of the right steps forwards are. So we've had a lot about your advice and what you do for your work, but we also want to know a little bit about you. Sure. Um, so we have a few quick fire questions. If animals could talk, what, which species do you think would be the rudest? I think squirrels. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah, a lot of them. I think they really don't give a toss. Um, I mean, I have a personal dislike of them, so that could be colouring my <laughs> response here. But um, I've heard a lot of bad things about squirrels. You know, they really, you know, will mess things up for people if they're given the chance. Um, I mean, I'm talking about grey squirrels here. The red ones are pretty cool, but they've been obviously run out of town. Um, grey squirrels just seem to run amok and do whatever they like. And, you know, they, I don't think they care. I think they tell you where to go. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, if you could listen to uh, one song for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's really easy because <laughs> I kind of did in the last year uh, or two, uh, having discovered it. And in fact, Spotify told me <laughs> I'd listen to the most. Um, so yeah, uh, Keith Jarrett, uh, incredible jazz pianist, uh, his version of Autumn Leaves, the live version, which is around 20 minutes long. And it's just him and his trio uh, recorded live in 67, I think it was. I had that wrong. Um, and it is just an incredible, incredible feat of both virtuosic playing but also musical journey and you know joy you know it's just you know, it's formless improvisation and a, a, a trio of people who obviously just loved loved playing with each other and you can really hear that come through the music so if you haven't heard it and you like jazz at all then I would really recommend it have that have that old key What's your signature dish, even if you're if you even if you're not a great cook? I am quite a good cook, actually. I absolutely love cooking. It's one of my biggest joys is to make a big pot of something or a few things for for a big meal with family and friends. Um, so I've got a few things that I cook. Um, I guess uh, I do a really good kind of lasagna, kind of chili lasagna. Um, and I also just made a really great jackfruit coconut curry. Um, so I just, that was, I just made that. I just tried it and I did it all without a recipe. I just threw some stuff in and everybody loved it. So I'm going to try and recreate that this weekend. Perfect for the winter weather. Exactly. Yeah. Lovely. What was the first work thing that you were really proud of? I, I, I think it probably would be the PRS Foundation kind of, because we, had to build the charity from nothing. So setting up a charity, getting a range of funding programs up and running and yeah, um, being, you know, hearing from people who'd never ever had funding before, you know, particularly people not in the classical music world. So the kind of pop music sector, being able to support those people was um, a really joyful experience, yeah. I felt proud to be a part of it. What is the best piece of advice you've ever 
think one which I still <laughs> struggle with um, came from a moment at a board meeting where I perhaps showed my consternation too clearly and the chair at the time this is about 25 years ago uh, said to me afterwards you need to become more inscrutable in these public contexts um, you know kind of hold your call hold your cards close to your chest um, and whilst I think as I get older and I suppose you know especially being in a kind of senior leadership role Part of me cares less about that because I'm kind of like, this is who I am and, you know, I'm going to tell you how I feel about stuff. But equally, I think it can be really uh, useful to be able to stay, you know, fairly inscrutable and not necessarily give away what you might be thinking at that moment. So that was one the other piece of advice is a harsh one and one I've had to give to many, uh, many sort of younger people as I've gone through my career, which is that organisations are not your family. Um, and particularly in my sector, in the creative sector, it can be easy to get, to get confused about that because we invest a huge amount in these wonderful organisations. We're working with incredible creative people we are often there long hours putting on amazing events um and it's easy to feel that you might be indispensable to said organization or that you're you know an absolutely key part of the team but the truth is that you know in a time of limited resources that's what you are you are a resource and if the business case doesn't need you for that moment in time you are expendable and i think uh you know this doesn't have to mean you know that you know everything is lost and you don't you can't you, you know you can't get attached to your work or you know you can't be invested in it and i think trying to keep some level of professional distance is really important and also i quite often advise people have a side hustle <laughs> You never know where, when you might need it. Last question for me. It's a question that we ask all our guests here on the podcast. Um, Rachel, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? I am actually pretty weird. <laughs> um, if you asked my kids, they'd they'd definitely put me up close to the ten. Um, I think I do a pretty good job of disguising it. <laughs> I'm good at playing the game but there's certainly a fair amount of weirdness going on underneath. <laughs> Give myself a seven or an eight for sure. But the best people are, is in my opinion. I definitely agree. Thank you so, so much for your time, your advice, uh, your insights. It's been truly wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, Keisha. And, uh, yeah, great questions. And thank you for having me. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.